You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 43 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we'll dive into a question that is very confusing for a lot of faithful, and as you'll see, it's confusing for some within the church itself. What is the official status of the Society of St. Pius X within the Catholic Church? There are accusations that it is schismatic, or at least that it has a spirit of schism. Another common accusation is that the Society is not part of the Catholic Church, since the Vatican has used the phrase about it, not in full communion. Let's see what that phrase actually means, and whether or not it's even possible to be not in full communion. And finally, are the priests and the bishops of the Society of St. Pius X excommunicated? There's a lot of misinformation out there. Let's try to clear it up this week with Father Paul Robinson, right now on the SSPX Podcast. Welcome back to the SSPX Podcast and our next episode in the Crisis in the Church series, welcoming Father Paul Robinson from Our Lady, not from Our Lady, from St. Isidore's in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Hello, Father. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. It's good to be back on the program. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, It seems like most of our, at least the priories where there are, are academies, at least of the Society of St. Pius X in the United States, I think almost all of them are Marian. You have Blessed Virgin Mary Academy, Immaculate Conception, Our Lady of Sorrows. I was just default to that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, it's perfectly understandable. Um, we, Our academy actually is Our Lady Help of Christians, uh, though our church is named St. Isidore. So I think you're correct about that, Andrew. Well, it, it, you're not helping with my confusion at, at all, Father. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> well, today we're... Um, Let's talk about the canonical status of the Society of St. Pius X, Father. Um, it's, it's a big topic. Um, last week, we heard from His Excellency Bishop Fillet about the, uh, about the consecrations of the four bishops, and that triggered a whole lot of stuff in 19, 1988. Um, we have, you know, Ecclesia Dei Inflicta, which Pope John Paul II basically says the Society of St. Pius X is in schism. Um, so... What is the status of the Society of St. Pius X? And we'll just drill down from there. I guess we'll just start with some very basic questions like that, Father. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, I, I really um, would just like to start off in the same way that, that I did when I was speaking to Taylor Marshall about this same question. It was about a year and a half ago, I believe, that, that I did a, a podcast with him. Um, and... I just wanted to, before we got into the legal question uh, with Taylor, um, I wanted to make the point that, that really what we're trying to do as society priests is, is simply just to save souls. Um, obviously, all throughout this Crisis in the Church series, um, the society priests, the various ones who participated, have, have manifested the various ways in which um, somehow we got off track with Vatican II, um, the, the, the doctrine, there's a lot of doctrine that is unsound, there's a lot of unsavory ideas. We have this liturgy um, that is uh, hiding the essential nature of the Mass, um, and as, as a result, we're in a, a very grave crisis in the Church, and I think people have to uh, come to terms with that and recognize that um, we, to the degree that the faith has been watered down, um, and the the faith is presented in the wrong way, people are not catechized, um, then souls are lost. Souls are, uh, many souls are lost. And 
um, what what we are trying to do is is continue to do the work that's always been done in the Catholic Church of saving souls. Um, it's just a bit more difficult <laughs> today because um, the traditional Catholic identity that that has been part of of our Catholic heritage throughout the centuries, the faith of our fathers, um, is just simply not supported. Um, and I, what, I, what I hope is, is happening in this series for those who are, are going through the episodes um, is that they're, they're able to put a face on society priests. That perhaps they heard the, the soundbite version of what a society priest is, that were these uh, rad trads who are full of bitterness, you know, and we're just like got this axe to grind and <laughs> we're always in a bad mood because there's a crisis in the church. Um, but, I mean, w- one thing that's that's been comforting for me, Andrew, is that uh, it's it's more than just you and me now. <laughs> yeah. There's been many other priests who have, who have participated. Uh, uh, probably a lot of people who are, who are watching this um, don't know about the time before uh, this series existed and, and when when we were doing all those questions with Father, but yeah. but I, I'm really happy that so many priests have participated, and and people get to see. Okay, this is this is a side priest uh, in Italy, Father Tranquillo, or, or, or here's Bishop Follet. Um, here's a, a young priest, my like Father McGillivray, um, or a, a, an older priest like like Father Bomo, who are, are lately the mentor Father Bomo. We um, uh, yes are going to miss so much. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're able to see a pattern. They're like, okay, this is what a society priest looks like. Um, if anything, they're, they're far from being bitter. Um, they're just really focused on um, the, the deep reasons for the crisis. Um, they're, they're, they're definitely up to speed on these, these difficult questions. Um, they are preaching or, or teaching um, on the basis of principles. They have a very principled stand. Um, for what they're doing. Um, it's not a personality cult. Um, we're, we're not into politics, like vote for us or whatever, but it really, really does boil down to um, there's there's a very grave difference between the way the faith is being presented today and, and the way it was presented in the past. And as a result, souls are being lost. Lots of souls are being lost. Um, we believe that that tradition, that traditional Catholic identity that comes to us from our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a right to preserve that. And I, and I especially remember the, the words of our Lord where, where he says, you know, enter by the narrow gate. Um, many will, will seek to enter and will not be able to enter. And then and right after that in Matthew, he says, beware, beware of false prophets. Um, there's many, you know, in, in his time, um, those who are presenting religion, scribes and the Pharisees were, were presenting it wrongly. And um, that's the sad situation that we're in. So, so much false instruction out there, uh, false catechetics. Um, and in, in the light of, of that um, obvious fact, um, we are, are wanting to hold on to that faith that alone will save our souls. That's all that we're about. Uh, we, want, we want to serve God. Uh, we want to save our souls. Um, and in doing that, we're just we're just following Archbishop Lefebvre. Archbishop Lefebvre, he would he would always say, I mean, how how can I be accused of, of not being Catholic when all that I'm doing is is all I've ever done? It's I'm just doing what I was trained to do <laughs> as a Catholic priest, um, and and now I'm I'm being condemned for it. Um, so so how can this be something that's wrong? And and especially when we know. 
um, be, because we have that 2000 history, 2000 year history to refer to, we, we know what the authentic um, Catholic teaching is and what the authentic Catholic identity is. It's, it's definitely not, you know, having Pacamama idols. Um, it's, it's not having um, Assisi meetings with, with multiple religions. Um, it's definitely not having uh, masses where uh, the priest is facing the people, um, saying mass in the vernacular, and um, anthropomorphizing the, the liturgy and putting it on our on our level. Um, so we we know what that identity is, and we're just trying to hold on to it. Uh, and I, I believe that sincerely that that we're in good faith in doing so. Absolutely, uh, and it's it's interesting. It's it's nice also. With this series, we can go back and take a look at some of these some of these episodes as as references. Um, I was going to say one of the one of the accusations that is made against the Society of Saint Pius X, at least that I've heard, uh, you've probably heard a lot more than I have. Uh, but one of the accusations is the Society is disobedient to the spirit of Vatican II. All right. So what is what is the spirit of Vatican II? We can go back and we can see what the spirit of Vatican II is. We did it. We did an episode on that. Um, so when someone says, you know, the SSPX is disobedient to the spirit of Vatican II. Hmm. Let's take a look and see what the Spirit of Vatican II actually means. Dive into that. And I would say, in a sense, yes, the Society of St. Pius X is disobedient to the Spirit of Vatican II. Um, maybe that's a little bit harsh to say, but I think it's true. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so, yes. Father, specifically, let's let's start to dive into some of these accusations and, and look at them point by point. And I sure. think I think you're opening... Um, monologue, I guess we could say, is is well founded. Um, this is this is the mission of the society. This is what the what the society priests do. But let's look at some specific ones. Um, schismatic. Uh, you're often going to hear that about the SSPX. They are a schismatic group, or it is Archbishop Lefebvre himself was schismatic. So, uh, where do we start to unpack this uh, this critique, Father? Yeah, well, it was it was interesting what Bishop Lay mentioned in the in the last podcast. He he brought up the point, uh, for instance, that, that traditionally the the um, consecration of bishops without a papal mandate was not considered to be an act that implied a schism. Um, so I, I think that it's important for us to understand what is what we mean when we speak of schism, um, so as to distinguish it from what Archbishop Lefebvre was doing. Um, so, uh, schism is, is effectively a specific type of disobedience. So you can have different reasons for disobeying. Um, let, let's just take the example. You know, your your, your father tells you to take out the trash, um, and you tell him no. Um, it, it could be because you you would rather be doing something else at that time. You've got something else going on, so you don't want to do it then. It could be because you don't like to take out the trash. You know. Um, or there could be perhaps one of the most serious reasons for your disobedience um, would be that you simply do not um, accept the the authority of your father over you. you you're, mm-hmm. you're effectively saying um, you don't have a right to command me. Um, you have no authority over me. Um, so that that type of disobedience, that motive for disobedience is the specific type of disobedience that we call schism. Um, So uh, you perform, in other words, you perform a schismatic act um, against the Pope when you not only disobey him, but you disobey him because you hold that he does not have authority over you. 
This is what is done by the Eastern Orthodox. Um, they claim that their own patriarch is the one who has authority over them, whereas the Pope just has authority over the Western Church. Um, so that's what, what qualifies them as being schismatic. They do engage in this denial and principle of the authority of the Pope. Okay. So, so you have to look at the motivations of why the person is being disobedient. So, so we could say then that any, uh, so we can say not every disobedient act against the Pope or against the hierarchy would be, would constitute schism. Absolutely not. Um, so there, there are perhaps some acts of disobedience that would constitute, constitute schism and some acts of disobedience against the Pope that would not constitute schism. Okay. So, um, it depends on why you're being disobedient. In the case of the Archbishop, the Archbishop was very, very aware of this question. You know, he had a doctorate in theology from Rome, so he knew what schism was. He was he was very aware that if he was consecrating bishops uh, in order to set up a parallel hierarchy, that, that he did not recognize the hierarchy of the Church, he didn't recognize the Pope as being Pope, and he said, I want to sort of establish my own hierarchy um, that would have jurisdiction, um, that, that would effectively fill in the positions of authority in the church because I don't believe that the people who currently fill them have authority. If he had done something like that, um, then obviously he, he would have done something schismatic. Um, but he makes it clear, and I, I mean, I think it would be good for, for me just to, to quote him on this question. Um, he makes it clear before he consecrates the bishops and even at the sermon that he gives on the day of the consecrations that he's not wanting his bishops, he's not intending them to have jurisdiction for them to occupy positions um, of authority in the hierarchy um, as if they were would be ordinaries of, of dioceses or as if he would be able to give them some sort of jurisdiction where, where they would hold a position of authority. Um, but that he was simply consecrating them in order to have sacramental power so that um, there would be bishops who could consecrate or rather ordain traditional priests. So, so that he makes it very clear that that is his motive. So let me just quote a few statements that he made. First of all, um, on September the 8th, 1986, he's, he was giving a retreat at Econe, at our seminary in Econe, and he was speaking about this possibility of consecrating bishops. And he says, these bishops would be my auxiliaries, but would have no jurisdiction. They would only be there to give confirmation and ordination. This has nothing to do with setting up a parallel church. So, so that, that is extremely clear. And then when he gave the sermon on June 30th, 1988, um, that ceremony that the Bishop Lay was speaking about, in the midst of the sermon, he said, This ceremony, which is apparently done against the will of Rome, is in no way a schism. There is no question of us separating ourselves from Rome, nor of putting ourselves under a foreign government, nor of establishing a sort of parallel church as the bishops of Palma de Troya have done in Spain. They have even elected a pope, formed a college of cardinals. It is out of the question for us to do such things. Far from us be this miserable thought of separating ourselves from Rome. On the contrary, 
It is in order to manifest our attachment to Rome that we are performing the ceremony. So he's referring to a group of Sedevacantists in Spain who did deny the authority of the Pope and the authority of the bishops in the conciliar world, in the, in the post-Vatican II conciliar church, said that they did not have authority, they didn't really occupy those positions of authority. So what they decided to do, and actually it's kind of logical for a state of a contest, um, in order to, to save the, the, the attributes of the church that uh, Don Tranquillo was talking about, like state of a contest kind of destroyed the attributes of the church. There's no more indefectibility of the church, there's no more authority of the church. Um, and so they have to create a parallel hierarchy in order to say that the church has actually um, perdured even to this day with its essential characteristics. So they, they make their bishops and claim that they have jurisdiction and they elect popes in some cases, in some extreme cases, um, in order to have precisely a parallel hierarchy, um, whereas our bishops are not that at all. They're just there in order to give the sacraments of confirmation and ordination. Um, and as, as Bishop Filet mentioned, um, they, by the fact that they're bishops, they don't automatically have a position of authority in the Society of St. Pius X. Um, it's only, they have to be elected to those positions of authority. Um, and that, again, indicates that, that uh, the Archbishop ordained them for the purpose of conferring the sacraments. That makes sense. We so formally, the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth, we can see, or and we can start to see that formally, the SSPX not in not in schism. Um, you, you often hear though this again, kind of similar to the spirit of Vatican II. Um, you hear uh, critiques about, well, the SSPX is in a spirit of schism or has a schismatic mentality. Now, these are not official canonical uh, positions of the Church. These are just accusations. So uh, could we address those even though they're not really official uh, things? Um, things like, you know, for instance, Father, you you are in Denver, uh, and so you don't listen to Bishop Aquila. Uh, I think that's his name uh, mm -hmm. in Denver. Um, therefore, yes. you have a spirit, a schismatic spirit. That's often something that is kind of lobbied against you. Uh, what would you say to that, Father? Right. You know, and I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh, you know, we have the Fraternity of St. Peter here um, in, in Littleton, and recently one of their priests gave a sermon uh, on the topic of, of schism. And, and he explained exactly what, what I just said, um, that, that really schism is, is a specific type of, of disobedience. Um, and then he, he went on to, to, I don't know, from, it was my impression that it was that he was implicitly referring to us, even though he didn't mention us by name. Um, he, he indicated that, that schism um, is, is when someone disobeys, not because the thing ordered is difficult, or because he fears that the individual will be unjust, but because he does not want to, wish to recognize the authority of the Pope who issued the judgment. Um, and then... But he says, I mean, it seems like he implicitly realized that we don't do that. We're not refusing the authority of the Pope. Um, but he, he said, as prolonged schism inevitably leads to heresy, how can prolonged disobedience not lead to schism? Um, as if that we're in this position of disobedience as, as members of the Society of St. Pius X, 
and our disobedience uh, um, has the right motives. We're, we're disobeying for reasons of faith, but it's almost impossible from his perspective that disobedience not change its motive ultimately to a rejection of the authority of the Pope himself. Um, and I, I fully admit that this is, this is a difficult balance to maintain, Andrew. Sure. Um, we, we, I think we always have to be careful um, not falling into a schismatic mentality. And um, I, as I say, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty sensitive to, to this question. We, we do walk a tight line. So there's, there's two ways in which, which we can um, fall into to error. Um, and, and one of them is, is by uh, precisely falling, slipping into this rejection of the authority of the Pope or the rejection of the authority of the local ordinary. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we, we clearly um, recognize the authority of, of these figures in concrete ways. That, that help us not slip into this denial of their authority. So in all of the, all the society priests, we mentioned the name of the Pope in, in the Mass. We, we have his picture in uh, the vestibules of our churches. Um, we pray for him at, at the time of benediction, um, you know, as Pope. Um, and we try to correspond to the legitimate initiatives of the Pope. Um, I remember uh, a priest bulletin from a few years, years ago that printed a letter of, of Pope Francis. Um, this year, I know um, several of our chapels, including uh, St. Isidore's here in Denver, um, we have tried to uh, promote the year of St. Joseph that was, that was promulgated by Pope Francis, um, encouraged people to make use of those indulgences. Not like we're saying, okay, these, these indulgences don't exist, or right. because it's Pope Francis, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with this year of St. Joseph. Um, and, I don't, you know, I don't know if you recall us talking about Father Feeney, how, how Father Feeney, one of the things was that, that he, he didn't go to Rome when, when he was summoned. Um, it, was, it was almost like an implicit denial of their authority to adjudicate his cause. Um, whereas it's been, it was always very different with Archbishop Lefebvre. He was, he was looking for meetings with Paul VI, uh, with John Paul II, with Cardinal Ratzinger, um, he was always very open with Rome and, and wanting to converse with them and speak with them, um, and and that's that's why this this openness that we have had. I mean, I don't think we ever shut the door. They kind of shut the door on us between 1988 and 2000, mm -hmm. um, but but we never shut the door. We were always ready uh, to speak to them, um, and. Then it was it was through this this, this these conversations and, and relations we have with them that that we've been able to we may say draw closer to a canonical recognition um, through the jurisdiction we receive to hear confessions and also the authorization we receive for marriages. So um, I request um, authorization for the performance of the marriages here at, at Saint Isidore's, whether I'm performing them or, or one of the other priests is performing them. And I requested of of Archbishop Aquila. So I'm I'm, I'm acknowledging his authority, um, his position to uh, ability to to grant that authorization by requesting that you know, and he gives us he gives us that authorization. So there's these are many concrete ways 
in, in which we um, acknowledge the authority, clearly acknowledge the authority of the Pope and the local bishops. Um, we would never do these things if we actually believe they did not have authority. Right. So Archbishop Lefebvre, not trying to set up a parallel hierarchy, not trying to set up a separate church, the priests, the faithful, through yes. the canon of the Mass and benedictions, praying for the local ordinaries, um, recognizing that they have authority. Um, so we can look at we can look at this then from the perspective of uh, it's kind of hard to um, hard to argue that the archbishop was wrong in doing this, even though he did what many are accusing him. Even John Paul II himself accused him of uh, doing a schismatic act. But it's hard to argue that he did the wrong thing. It's it's nearly impossible to if you look at the crisis in the church with a clear mind. Yes, yes, and and th that would be how we would err on the other side. I mean, so on, on the one hand, we must not um, refuse to acknowledge that that these people, um, these prelates, who are in the position to deny that they possess authority in the church. Um, but it would it would also be wrong of us, and, and I mean, this is something I would say to that fraternity priest. It would it would be wrong of us to to think that. Well, at some point, we should basically give in to modernism because it's lasted too long, um, or that we should compromise on on questions of the faith. Um, you know, uh, we should start saying the new mass uh, at some point, um, just because it's it's been a long time, and we might have these scruples, these fears about falling into a schismatic mentality, um, because we can't we can't compromise the faith. We've got to save our souls. Um, it's through the true faith that we save our souls. Um, it's through the, the, the proper liturgy, the, an authentically Catholic liturgy, that we save our souls. So the other extreme would be to just say, well, I mean, they have authority and they're telling me to celebrate the new Mass. I mean, this is, this is what's anticipated with the implementation of Tristiones Custodes, um, where they are having these visitations. They're going to have these visitations of traditional orders. The Pope has made it very clear in this motu proprio that he does not want there to be people in the church who effectively uh, deny the legitimacy of the new mass or or even um, just simply out of preference don't want to say the new mass. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's likely that, that he will be asking these priests to say the, the new mass as a sort of pledge of their fidelity to Vatican II. Um, and that's where it goes too far. And I mean, and would this priest then say, "Well, I mean, this is this is what the Pope is telling me, so so I he holds the authority, so I have to do it." Um, there has to be this recognition that there can be an abuse of power. If if anyone, you know, uh, says Saint Paul, if anyone preaches you a faith other than the one I've given you, let him be anathema. I mean, the, the, if if anyone asks us to sell our faith short, compromise our faith in a way that's that's injurious to our souls. Um, then we do have uh, a duty before God to obey God rather than man. And um, we would err. We would, we would fall into uh, a problematic error uh, and, and something dangerous for our souls if we fell into those sorts of scruples and said, well, the Pope is telling me that, and so I must do it. And, and this, is, this is why... Um, Archbishop is such um, a, a wonderful anchor for us at, with the Society of St. Pius X 
He set an example for us priests. He set a trajectory for us. And so um, we just have to be faithful to that, where we keep this delicate balance. Um, on the one hand, we, we try to um, respect and acknowledge the authority of the Pope as far as possible. On the other hand, um, we cannot follow him in, in those things that are against the faith of our fathers. Um, so the, the archbishop um, consecrating bishops for the purpose of, of having traditional priest ordained was perfectly legitimate and, and right. Um, they, were, they did not want him to, to be able to continue this traditional formation and ordination of priests um, in the perennial faith, um, saying the, the Mass of all times. Um, yet Catholics have a right to that. We have a right to that. You have a right to that, Andrew, as, as a Catholic, as a baptized Catholic. Um, and, and no one can take that away. Um, it comes from, from Christ himself. Ultimately, come, all this comes from Christ himself. So, so um, the archbishop was, was definitely within his rights to, to do so, to do those consecrations. Let's look, Father, at the at the actual status of the Society of St. Pius X. Um, it was interesting to me, I, I knew some bits and pieces of this, but two episodes ago when we were looking at the history of the Society of St. Pius X up till 88 with Mr. Vogel, uh, he was talking about some of the um, the fact that the Society of St. Pius X was, was legitimate, uh, was a legitimately uh, uh, founded order or, or society within the, within the church. Um, its members were being incarnated. Um, but today, the Society of St. Pius X is not an official congregation or organization within the church. Is that correct? Yes, it's, it's correct on paper. It's certainly correct on paper. Um, the, the Archbishop never acknowledged that this, the suppression of the society was, was lawful. Um, the procedure was, was very... Uh, disordered, and he was never given his his own uh, right to defend himself. I mean, normally he he appealed the decision, um, but he was never given a proper trial or hearing. I mean, this is something that that everyone would want to have if if they had been uh, accused of of doing something wrong. They deserve a proper trial, um, and the archbishop was never given that. I mean, in justice, he deserved that. Um, but they did not want to give that to him. They did not want to um, have a, a public show of, of his opposition to Vatican II by having a, some sort of trial, ecclesiastical trial. Um, but, you know, in the sense that it was juridically irregular, um, the, the Archbishop considered that, that the society was never lawfully suppressed. And, you know, I mean, really that's... That's in the uh, for for God to know for sure. Um, and, I mean, certainly, um, my position that would be my position as as well. Um, that that the, those who are in authority abuse their power in in suppressing the work of society. They they really couldn't give a reason why they were suppressing the society other than the declaration that the archbishop issued. Um, so, but on paper, certainly, um, the Society of St. Pius X does not have canonical status. So normally speaking, we would be uh, canonically erected into something like a, a personal prelature. 
Um, and we would go to different places and, and we would we work in parallel to the dioceses in which we um, had our priories. Um, and so just like a religious order, sometimes religious orders go into uh, a specific diocese, but, but they're not under the jurisdiction of the diocese. They're under their own jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, they're what are called exempt. Um, so so they, we, would, we would have uh, a canonical structure such that we would exist in the dioceses and we would answer to our superior general who would then answer to a congregation in Rome or the, the Pope himself. Um, that's normally what would be the case. Um, so, um, for obvious reasons, the the, the Pope, um, the Pope, post Vatican II popes have not wanted to give that to us. Um, they they just simply do not want there to be an order in the Church um, that is forming priests according to the traditional teaching of the Church and for the celebration of the traditional Mass, and so they do not grant us that canonical recognition. Um, I think, you know, from our perspective, if, if we are, are able to maintain the faith, we're able to, to um, hold on to the traditional teaching of the church, for instance, on religious liberty, on collegiality, on ecumenism, um, if we're able to maintain the traditional liturgical practices of the church that do not destroy our faith, um, we, we, we would welcome with open arms uh, canonical recognition. Um, I, I honestly think, in conscience, we, we would um, not be able to turn it down. You know, because right. precisely because we recognize the authority of the Pope. The only reason we could possibly say no would be a question of faith. Um, but if it's not a question of faith, um, then then we we should accept it. But but the, the the fact is that they have not wanted to offer to us up to this point a canonical structure wherein we will be able to remain as we are. Um, but but we have to main, re- remain as we are for the salvation of souls. Another term so, that so is it's just kind of at a standstill. Another term that's used um, often to describe the Society of Saint Pius X is quote not in full communion. Um, this one's always been a little bit of a head scratcher to me because uh, yes. and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> Father, but um, I don't yes. think that that is an official canonical status, either in full communion or not in full communion. Uh, because at least to my mind, yes, you are either in communion, meaning you're Catholic, or you are not in communion, meaning you are not Catholic. It's kind of one or the other. Uh, not in full communion kind of makes it sound like, uh, I, I said last week when I was introducing this episode, it's kind of like the SSPX is the Schrodinger's cat of, of Catholicism. It's like, <laughs> how can you be not in full? So can you help me understand this, Father? We're sort of in the box, but we're not in the box. Right, right. And, or there's, there's this fuzzy logic about the society where yeah. <laughs> we, we exist in both realms at once. Or you could be um, in an alternate yeah, reality. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that's that's a good image. Um, it's kind of ironic that that um, we we are kind of uh, – that that new language – of Vatican II that we believe comes from the false ecclesiology is being applied to us because it puts us in an awkward position of not only disagreeing with this statement, but disagreeing with the theology behind the statement. The whole concept, yeah. <laughs> Which makes it doubly complicated. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I, um, 
unfortunately, I haven't listened to all the, the, the Christ in the Church series, um, and you haven't either, but you've done all the Christ in the Church series, but, <laughs> which is even better. Yeah. <laughs> but um, surely at some point, the, the phrase of Lumen Gentium has been discussed where it says that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Um, so this, this statement represented a, a new ecclesiology that was trying to say that somehow the Church of Christ is bigger than the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is, is some limited subset of the Church of Christ, which is much bigger. And that the, the Church of, the, the, sorry, the Catholic Church alone um, has a, an, an identity with the, the Church of Christ in the sense that it fully realizes the Church of Christ. But other religions, other churches, are also in the Church of Christ. They just don't realize fully what it means to be part of that Church of Christ. Um, so this is the new idea that was brought in by the documents of, of the Second Vatican Council, that the Catholic Church fully realizes what it means to be part of the Church of Christ, but other churches also realize partially what it means to be in the Church of Christ. And this is a way for them to say that, you know, it's not just the Catholic Church that is the Church of Christ. Um, there are other churches that have some sort of communion with the Church of Christ. It's just not full communion. Only the, the Catholic Church has full communion with the Catholic Church. Um, other churches, like the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Methodists or whatever, they have some sort of partial communion um, with the Church of Christ. Before the Second Vatican Council, it was super clear. It's like the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. Um, so you are either in the Catholic Church and therefore in the Church of Christ, or you are not in the Catholic Church and you're not in the Church of Christ. You're not even a church. We, we wouldn't even call the Baptist religion a church or the Presbyterian religion a church before Vatican II. So, so that's a major change in order to serve the, the purposes of ecumenism, to be able to say that these other religions do save souls, um, that these other religions are passed to salvation, that they do contain elements of sanctification, and so on and so forth. Um, and so what, what they're doing when they say that the Society of St. Pius X is not in full communion, they're basically lumping us in with these other non-Catholic bodies, um, and they would say that, you know, we have some good aspects to us, but we're not in full communion, we're not fully Catholic. But of course, they can't point to anything that we, we do um, or profess that would put us outside the, the Catholic Church. I mean, we, we profess the, the creed. Um, and there's there's certainly not a new article of the creed that you know where we say I believe I believe in Vatican II I believe in the Holy Catholic Church I believe in Vatican II. I mean that's not one of the articles of the faith that hasn't been added Vatican II was a pastoral council so there's there's no strict obligation for us to profess Vatican II or to celebrate the new Mass in order to be Catholic we celebrate a Catholic Mass a perfectly legitimate liturgy that has never been abrogated by the Church. Um, we profess all the articles of, of the faith, um, but but they they would like to say that we're not in full communion. 
Um, and so we're, they're lumping us in with those other non-Catholic bodies. The irony's thick here. Just saying. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So that's not in full communion. Um, next, excommunicated, the big one. Um, are members, so meaning priests, religious bishops, etc., of the Society of St. Pius X, are they excommunicated? Are you excommunicated? Is this whole organization excommunicated? And what about the faithful father? Um, so there are, are no excommunications um, against the bishops or the priests of the Society of St. Pius X, uh, neither on paper um, nor in reality. Um, we can say that now, um, both of those now, after the decree of, of um, Pope Benedict XVI in 2009, where he declared that the, the excommunications that were leveled against, uh, what were said to be automatically incurred by that decree, Ecclesia Dei Afflicta, um, were, were lifted. So, yeah, as, as I mentioned, in 1988, after the Archbishop um, did the, the consecrations, Pope John Paul II issued a document um, in which he said that Archbishop Lefebvre, Bishop Castro Meyer, and the four newly consecrated bishops all incurred an ipso facto excommunication um, that, that merely by the performance of that act, of what they did, uh, they incurred an excommunication. So he wasn't saying, I excommunicate you. Um, he was saying um, that by, you, by what you did, um, you incurred an excommunication on yourself. Because there's, okay. there's certain provision in canon law that if you do certain things, um, you will be excommunicated. Um, I think you know one of the things was was like becoming a Freemason in the past. I don't think that's still on the books, but that used to be one of the things. Or um, doing violence against the Pope, or um, defiling the, the sacramental species, stealing the blessed sacrament, things like this. You would incur an automatic excommunication. John Paul II is saying that's that's what happened to you. He's saying the Archbishop felt that's what that's what happened to you when you did what you did. Um, but in 2009. Um, Pope Benedict XVI said that the, the excommunications uh, no longer exist for the four bishops. Of course, Archbishop Feve and Bishop Capture Meyer were dead at that time, um, so he just, his document just referred to the four bishops. Uh, on that note, Father, talking about excommunications and, and this specific um, accusation that Archbishop Lefebvre incurred this ipso facto, um, we could probably get into this probably this would probably take a 30 40 minute discussion just by itself if we really wanted to cover it but yes. Yes. just briefly yes. um did the society of saint pius x did archbishop lefebvre agree that he was excommunicated it did or did he say this was not actually even though it was on paper it didn't have any basis in in fact he did not agree. Um, that document stated um, that what he had done was a systematic act, and it also stated that he had automatically incurred an excommunication. Um, now, we have to understand that, that again, um, what any authority says on paper um, doesn't isn't necessarily true just because of the fact that they state it. Um, I mean, no one of us has power over reality to such a degree that, that our words make for reality. 
Um, so John Paul II was giving a judgment on the situation. He was judging that the act was schismatic. And we've already explained why, why it couldn't be schismatic. It was very clearly not schismatic. Um, so we, I, I would judge that statement to, to be false. Um, and the, the same with the, the declaration that he had excommunicated himself. It's very clear in canon law that um, there is some judgment that needs to be made on the subjective dispositions of the person performing the act. Um, so the consecration of bishops without a papal mandate was not excommunicable um, before some revisions made to the, the Code of Cameron in the 1950s. Um, really it was because of uh, a lot of consecration of bishops that were being done in China and which were being done to create a parallel hierarchy um, where the Chinese were creating some of this kind of this patriotic church, this Chinese church, um, kind of like Henry VIII creating his own um, parallel church. In his day, the Chinese were doing the same in, in the 1950s. Um, and because of that situation, um, the consecration of bishops without papal mandate was listed as one of the excommunicable offenses. Um, but, but again, um, the, the motive, there had to be a motive of, of certain malice, a certain rejection of the authority of Rome, a certain desire to create a parallel hierarchy, um, whereas canon law indicates that if the, if the person who's doing it, if they honestly believe in conscience that they need to do this for the good of the church, um, then they don't incur the excommunication. Um, so, so again, this is something we can argue about for forever um, with, with other people. Um, it, it, it can't ultimately be decided. It's just a judgment call that each person has to make based on their reading of the arguments or the listening of the, uh, of the arguments or judgment of, of canon law. Um, but, but what I would say, and I think I also brought this up in the podcast with Taylor Marshall, is that for whatever reason, they don't want to get into that subjective arena when it comes to the Society of St. Pius X to say, well, what were, what were the motives for uh, which Archbishop Lefebvre did this? Did he really honestly believe there was a crisis in the church? Did he honestly believe that the traditions of the church would not continue um, unless he consecrated bishops? They don't even ask that question. Um, so it is an important question because if he honestly believed that, that this was the case, um, then he would be doing it in good faith. He wouldn't be doing it in bad faith. If he did it in good faith, he, he wasn't automatically excommunicated. Canon law is not going to automatically excommunicate anybody who's in good faith. It's only people in bad faith. Um, but, you know, John Paul II just jumped in there and, and said, this, is, you, this was a schismatic act. We're not going to consider your subjective dispositions, whether you're trying to create a parallel hierarchy or not. And we're also going to say you, if so facto, excommunicated yourself without considering your subjective dispositions. Um, so from our perspective, the, the dispositions of, of the archbishop were good. He was doing it in good faith, and therefore he did not incur an excommunication. So in, in a sense, and again, not, not to get way too far into the weeds here, um, the, the ipso facto excommunication means that something had to have happened for the excommunication to be triggered, there there was this triggering event, uh, and since um, Archbishop Lefebvre, in good conscience, did these things, well, in good conscience, um, he wasn't doing it to go against the hierarchy of the church. Therefore, that triggering event didn't happen. Therefore, the excommunication didn't happen, and and it's noteworthy because Pope John Paul II did not specifically say 
I therefore excommunicate you from the church. He just said, you have incurred this penalty ipso facto because of this action. And if this action was legitimate, then therefore there can be no excommunication. Is that kind of it boiled down? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, by the fact that he didn't say, I excommunicate you, it opens up this whole discussion. Okay. It makes possible this discussion as to whether, um, in fact, that was true or not. Um, but by the fact that he said it doesn't necessarily make it true. Okay. Uh, we've been talking about the actions of Archbishop Lefebvre. We've been talking about the, the, the bishops. Um, let's talk about you, Father. Um, so as of today, as of right now, are you suspended? Uh, are you suspended from your priestly faculties, Father? That's another accusation. That's why I ask. I'm not just asking out of curiosity. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, no. I, um, the priestly society are not suspended. Um, there, there has been no decree to suspend us. And um, just to clarify, by, by suspension is, is meant that we the, the the right to celebrate mass and perform the sacraments is withdrawn from us when you suspend the priest adivinis um then you say that effectively he has no right anymore to exercise the functions of the priesthood um in the church so there is there's been no decree um made against us that that we are suspended and it's interesting some arguments who have made been made by um, some who are outside of our circles. Um, there's the famous Father Z who has this, this very popular blog um, and he speaks about the fact that we've been given faculties for hearing confessions by Pope Francis. Um, and it is, it is a rather strange situation that, that we would not have canonical status and yet we would be given faculties to hear confessions. Um, why would you, you know, if you're, if you're giving, if I have faculties from Pope Francis to hear confessions, it's clear that I'm not suspended because he's telling me, he's giving me authorization really around the world to hear confessions, um, to do the functions of the priesthood. Um, and then Bishop Snyder made a point at one time, Bishop Athanasius Snyder, this famous bishop who's very traditional leaning, um, he indicated that, that, you know, it, it would make no sense that we would be Catholic priests only at the moment when we're hearing the confession. Like we, we, we suddenly magically become Catholic, <laughs> and then once we step out of the box, we're non-Catholic somehow, right. or we're, we're, we're not um, priests who, who have any legitimacy. Um, and he also mentioned with regards to the marriages that we are authorized to perform, we um, are given permission, authorization to perform these marriages and implicitly we're given permission to celebrate the mass, the nuptial mass that goes with the marriage. How can the Vatican, how would the Vatican be able to authorize the couple standing there before a society priest and um, receiving their vows and then say, well, but it's wrong for them to attend the mass, the, the, the nuptial mass that goes with their marriage. And, you know, that, that, that would make no sense. Um, so that's why sometimes people speak of us as being in a sort of canonical limbo. Um, we're, we're, we're kind of this, this third thing, this strange creature in the church right now where we have, we have authorization to do uh, things as priests, um, but we don't have that canonical standing. Um, and 
You know, I mean, ultimately for me, um, it, it really boils down to the fact that the, the traditional movement is not wanted in the church. Um, um, there's no way they can say that, that we're, we're not Catholic. Um, there's nothing that we, they can really reproach us for from the side of the faith, anything legitimate. But we, we are a political, we, we are a, a sort of a hot potato because of our opposition to Vatican II. It would, it would cause a huge impact around the church if we were authorized. If there was an order such as our own who publicly criticized the, the problems of Vatican II to be given uh, official standing. And that's why it's always been just so difficult for them to um, actually um, give us that standing. It's, it's just a question of um, the fact that we have this opposition to Vatican II and not the fact that we're really bad guys that, that um, keeps them from giving the canonical standing that I think, um, honestly, we, we, we deserve to have. We, we, should, we, should have, we, we have a right to, to have um, as, as just pretty decent fellows all around. <laughs> And, and we're going to go into this in, in more detail in another episode, um, specifically talking about whether or not the faithful can mm-hmm. attend mass at an SSPX chapel. Um, but it seems odd to me that the Vatican is making statements on one hand saying, or intimating at least, that SSPX priests are suspended. But on several occasions, people from within the Vatican in high positions have said that you can attend these masses. So how does how do those two things fit yeah well i mean i i would just say for those people who have might have scruples about attending mass at the society of st Pius x um, because of the the various measures that have been taken against the society and and as i say i mean there's solid arguments to indicate that in practice we're, we're not suspended um, but for those people i would point them to several documents of the Pontifical Commission of Ecclesia Dei. This was the commission established in 1988 in order to handle the traditionalist movement um, in in the wake of the consecrations of Archbishop Lefebvre. They established this commission um, as, as a sort of way to have direct access to Rome on the part of traditionalists. So this commission, um, what what it, it has happened on several occasions is that people have sent questions to the the Ecclesia Dei Commission um, and have asked, okay, is it is it possible? Um, is it wrong to attend masses of the Society of Saint Pius X? And as I say, like three or four occasions, um, the commission answered and said, in fact, it's it's not sinful to go to uh, a mass of the Society of St. Pius X. You're not um, adhering to a schism. There's there's no formal adherence to a schism by attending a mass of the Society of St. Pius X. And uh, there's there's even a, a, a word in, in 1996 that it's okay to, to even contribute a little bit to the, the collection plate if you go to a mass of the Society of St. Pius X. So, um, you know, I mean, in light of that, even even on the part of Rome, uh, Rome Rome says uh, that it's okay to go to our masses, and I think that's important for people to know um, who who might really be concerned that that they would be offending God by coming to the Society of Saint Pius X. Sure, that makes sense. Um, and then, as we're as we're sort of wrapping up here, you know, it, it's it's interesting the motu proprio 
Summorum Pontificum in 2007 seems to have, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but seems to have vindicated a lot of what Archbishop Lefebvre did. Um, now with the most recent metaproprio here in 2021, Traditionis Custodis, maybe that, that was a little bit of a backward step, but just for yes. now, let's just look at Summorum Pontificum. Um, with through the lens of history, how does that impact the status of either Archbishop Lefebvre posthumously or the society? Yes, it, it's it's. Um, I, I think it's extremely interesting um, how that developed in the sense that there was so much pressure being put on Archbishop Lefebvre to celebrate the new mass, and they would always tell him just celebrate a new mass publicly. And if you do so, then everything will be right with Rome. Um, and, and of course, the Archbishop ended up refusing. But the premise was that that we have a right to to force you to celebrate this mass. And if you do not, um, then effectively, you know, you you are incurring the fault of grave disobedience. And it, the implication was that the traditional mass did not have any rights in the church. Um, so in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI came out. I mean, this is this is 16 years after the death of Archbishop Lefebvre. He came out and he said the traditional mass was never abrogated. Um, in other words, it was never legally suppressed. In other words, <laughs> again, it, you, there was always the right to celebrate that traditional mass. Um, so, I mean, God bless the Archbishop for continuing to to say that mass in the midst of, of great pressure. Um but we, you know, history showed that all along he he was he did even had a legal right. It wasn't it wasn't just a right um, in the eyes of God, but even there was a legal right for him to celebrate that mass. So uh, I would just point out that uh, appearances can be deceiving. Uh, it may it may be uh, appear at times that there is some sort of legal suppression, or um, that on on paper. There's an attempt to say that there's no right to say the traditional mass, but even even in that case, um, there was still um, the the, the uh, a legal existence for the traditional mass. As you indicate, perhaps in Tristianus Custodes, um, the the um, uh, Pope Francis has tried to, in some way, uh, through the back door, abrogate the traditional mass in the sense that he is is saying that. There's only one right. There's only one Roman right now, and that's the new mass. Um, and he's eliminated that distinction between the ordinary form and the extraordinary form that uh, Pope Benedict the, the 16th introduced and in Samorum Pontificum. Um, so perhaps there's there's a back backing away from that, but still there's been no there's been no declaration that the traditional mass has been abrogated. Um, but but as I say. Um, it's, it's kind of ironic because because it seems like um, Archbishop Lefebvre all along um, was was right and even legally in continuing to say the traditional mass. It's at, at times it's it's a little infuriating uh, to to read some of these things and, and to and to dig into some of this stuff um, because you just want to go. It's not making sense. And, and earlier when you were saying you know the Vatican didn't want to get into the subjective arguments about whether or not. Uh, Archbishop, you know, believe what he was doing was correct or not. It might be the only time in the last 50 years that the Vatican has not wanted to get into a subjective argument, but that's neither here nor there. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of ironic that they would 
look at, at all these um, non-Catholic religions go around and, and say, well, you know, you all are in good faith and tell the Buddhists, just be a good Buddhist, um, or to, to go to the Hindus and, and uh, praise them for, for their attempt to find God in their religion, which is just very subjective. Objectively, is wrong. You know, objectively, right. what they're doing is, is, is not correct at all. They're in false faith. Um, whereas they they would look at us and, and they would say, well, you did you disobeyed, therefore you're in the bad books without um, considering the perspective, the, the the very real perspective, objectively argued um, that we have that that something is very wrong in the church, as as shown throughout all these these podcasts, and and therefore saying maybe maybe we should actually um, adjudicate. And their their situation that that takes into account um, their objective arguments and also um, their impression of things. Amen. Father, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for chatting with us about this. It helps quite a bit. Um, the situation is still not crystal clear, um, and it won't be until the Vatican does something. Um, but at least it helps to us to understand kind of where where the Society of Saint Pius X stands. Yes, and I, I would I would just say you know it, it is um, it is important to see the big picture. Um, if if we do really see the the, the church crumbling, um, we do see these these major problems. We do see um, now after this motu proprio, the traditional movement. There's an attempt to to shut it get, shut it down once more. Um, what's what's the safest thing for somebody's soul? Um, what, what is going to be necessary to save our souls in this world? We have this duty to save our souls um, in the concrete world we live in in 2021. Um, and I mean, I, I think I can honestly say uh, our our faithful they they know the faith, they know their catechism. Um, there are there is some people who are bitter, um, but at the same time. Um, we have a lot of devout people, and I, do, I, I really think we're providing them um, a, a, a environment in which they can learn the faith, love their faith, and, and save their souls. And that's that's what we all have to do in this world. Well, thank you for helping provide that, Father. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Andrew. All right. We'll talk with you next time. Thanks, Father. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 43 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, Father Jonathan Loop will join us for a related topic to today's episode. We just looked at the status of the SSPX. Given that this is really not fully answered and a bit ambiguous, can the priests of the society exercise a valid ministry in the Catholic Church? Are they allowed to say Mass, to hear confessions, or to bless marriages? How can the Society of St. Pius X, in short, justify its activities in the Catholic Church under this strange situation. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.